Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Um, So last week we began this five-week series where we're going to take a look at a few of the parables that Jesus told in the Gospels. Now, most of Jesus' parables were built just around simple, common, everyday experiences that the people in his culture would have had. And he used those parables to explain deeper truths about heaven, about our life with God, and put those things in a language that the everyday, ordinary person could understand. Generally, those parables contained one single point of emphasis. That's why I've called the series The Moral of the Story. That's what we're going to look for every week, is what's the single point that Jesus is teaching in this parable and see how we can apply it to our lives. So if you have your Bible this morning, whether it's a paper Bible or an electronic one, just open it up, if you would, to Luke chapter 12. We'll start with verse 13. Um, And if you don't have your Bible with you and you don't know what I mean by an electronic Bible, uh, you could just go to the church app. And at the bottom, there's five icons. Press on the one that says Notes. And all the passages I'll talk about this morning, as well as other information that's on the screen, is there for you. Uh, to follow along and take your own notes if you would like. So in Luke chapter 12, we find Jesus teaching publicly, and a man, almost feels a little bit like a heckler, calls out from the crowd to Jesus and says, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. The Jewish laws were really clear about the distribution of an estate in family, routine family matters. The dead person's possessions, money, everything they owned would be divided into equal shares with the older sibling, the brother, getting a double portion as well as the right to now become the patriarch of the family. And if in the process of sorting all this out, you got into some kind of a dispute, you'd go to the local rabbi you knew and trusted and you'd have that rabbi sort things out for you. There's an old saying about estates that says where there's an inheritance people become wolves. And it's pretty true. And that's evidently what's happening here because this younger brother's demanding that Jesus solve this conflict so that he can get his portion of the estate. But Jesus replied to him and said, friend, who's made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said to the man and to everyone around, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. I think Jesus' admonition to guard against greed is a really healthy one for us to pay attention to. Greed can creep into our lives in ways that we have no way of realizing until it's already gotten a hold of us. Two years ago, when my father died, my sister and our families got together to divide a few of dad's possessions. Having been around families in this kind of a circumstance and knowing my own potential... I knew that there was a good chance that greed would bubble up inside of me as we started to divide things. And so I asked my son to kind of keep an accurate read on my words and my actions. I took him aside and I gave him permission. And I said, look, if you sense that in me, I don't want that. And just quietly, just take a hand, put it on my back and just kind of rub my back. That'll be a signal between the two of us that I'm out of line a little bit. I need a course correction. So the family gathered. We started to go through dad's most personal possessions, which for him were his guns and knives. And uh, it just tells you a lot about my family, I'm sure. And as we started to talk about 
those things and what was going to happen with them, I did really well for five minutes. And literally five minutes into it, my son puts his hand on my back and rubs my back gently. And this, this visceral response came out of me. And I looked at him and I went, really? Already? I mean, everything inside of me wanted to argue with him. I wanted to rescind my request. But in my heart, I knew he was right. Even when we know it's there, even when we know the potential is there to be greedy, we have a tough time seeing it as something real in our lives. And when it surfaces, the struggle is almost always one question at the core. How much is enough? Money, cars, homes, bank accounts, vacations, food. How much is enough? So when it comes to problems that we have in our life, and greed is one of the ones we do this the most with, we tend to measure them on a subjective sliding scale. So we think about greed in our life, we measure ourselves that way, and it's no coincidence that we seldom find ourselves guilty of being greedy. And as a result, I don't think any of us have an accurate picture of what greed looks like in our life or how we deal with it. So Jesus' parable that he launches into is really helpful for us. He tells them a story and says a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and all my other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you'll die this very night. And then who's going to get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool. To store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. You know, we listen to this rich farmer story, and it's, it's pretty obvious from the brief story that Jesus tells us, he's not a crooked farmer. He didn't cheat and steal to get the massive harvest that he got. He didn't go over and harvest his neighbor's crops and put those in his barn. He just was blessed with a really good run of years on his crops. The problem wasn't how he got what he had. The problem was his attitude as his personal wealth increases. It's painfully obvious. As the good news pours in, he puts all of the focus on himself. It's all about his life, his work, his profits, his desires, his comfort. And it's almost painful to read the four verses that make up this parable because in it, he is so self-absorbed, he uses personal pronouns, me, my, I, more than a dozen times in four short verses. When he does, he shows he has no gratitude for God's part in helping him grow the crops. There's no thanking God for the fertile soil. There's no thanking God for the rain and the sunshine that were beyond the farmer's control. He's too obsessed with hoarding his wealth, and he's lost sight of everyone and everything else, including his relationship with God. Now, in this particular parable, Jesus starts by giving the moral of the story. It's not woven into or spoken at the end. At the very beginning, he says it. Remember, Jesus said, life is not measured by how much you own. 
When the stuff of this world, when cars and houses and portfolios and vacations and clothes, when anything begins to define define our worth, when it begins to shape our values, when it drives our relationships, then we've lost sight of the primary calling in our life, which is to live a Christ-centered, God-honoring life. As a parent, we learn that greed comes naturally. We see it in our kids, right? They may learn their first word is mama or dada, but pretty close after that is what? Mine. 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 They're like the seagulls in Finding Nemo, right? It's one of the best scenes I've ever seen in a movie, which tells you I'm not much of a movie critic. But it's just mine. The Bible teaches us repeatedly that we're called to a different kind of life when it comes to our possessions. That attitude of mine doesn't work because the more we feed greed, the hungrier it gets. All it's going to take to make us happy is just a little bit more. And it grows. Because of God's grace in our lives, because of His goodness to us, we are called to be a generous people. Paul wrote to young Timothy, one of his protégés, who was pastoring a church and talked about this very thing. And he said, look, teach the people in the church to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Generosity is a principle that permeates the pages of Scripture. And the Bible teaches right alongside it. Look up greed and you'll see generosity right there with it most of the time in the Bible because the Bible is teaching us that the antidote to greed is generosity. Because God has forgiven us, we forgive others. Because God has extended grace, we can extend grace. Because God loves us, we can love others even when they're hard to love. Freely you've received, Jesus said. Freely give. And the joy of giving will always exceed the joy of getting. So if generosity is the antidote, how do we apply it in our lives so that we don't become greedy people? How do we become rich in this relationship with God, not just in the possessions of this world? Let me give you three actions that you can take, three steps you can take. Whichever ones you apply will help you with this to be more generous. When we're blessed, we should give generously to others. The rich man in the parable pondered his problem. He said there's too much grain in storage and not enough space to hold it all. And in his day, grain in a silo was money in a bank, and he had a lot of it. Now, take note, though, that in this parable, Jesus does not, here or anywhere else in his teaching, criticize people for succeeding because of hard work. He doesn't criticize people for saving to provide for their future. God encourages good planning, wise stewardship. Jesus did, however, frown on a couple of things in this guy's story. First, the wealth in his life had choked off his relationship with God. He thought only in terms of the tangible, the immediate, whatever he could grasp or consume or hoard. And then he uses a phrase that pulls the people of Jesus' day back to another story in the book of Isaiah where the people were just absorbed in their own wealth and absorbed in their own pleasures, and they used the phrase that Jesus used here, eat, drink, and be merry. And so when Jesus said that, they went, oh, and connected the dots between the two. 
It portrayed the true condition of this man's heart when he said that phrase. He had lost sight of God, the most important thing in his life. Secondly, Jesus criticized the fact that the guy didn't care about anybody else. The absence of others in his story is painful, as I said earlier. He thought only of himself. He built bigger barns. He hoarded what he had. He didn't give away to those who had nothing. He didn't check in on his neighbors to see if they needed help or if they needed you know, some money or some of his grain. And he never expressed his gratitude to God for this incredible harvest. If we want to avoid this rich man's plight, we are called to live with a generous heart. When we are blessed, bless others. When things are given to us, give some to others. Now that doesn't mean that there is this prohibition in Scripture for us enjoying what God blesses us with. Having a relationship with God and sharing with others all at the same time. You can do all three. But we, it's easy to get confused as you read stories in the New Testament. Because you hear like the story of the rich man who came to Jesus in the middle of the night. And he started asking him questions about what do I need to do to get into heaven? And so Jesus talks to this rich man for a few minutes and then concludes by saying, Look, if you want to be perfect then go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. Now we hear that, and we start to ask questions, and we can feel a little fear or guilt. I mean, is this a universal principle? Does Jesus call all of his followers to sell everything and give it away? But then we read about Peter and his brother Andrew, two of Jesus' closest followers. When Jesus called them. Remember what they were doing? They were fishing. This is not a two-man bass boat on the Sea of Galilee. This is a large commercial vessel. They had a family business that was very successful when Jesus called them. They walked away from it. But what's also true is that when Jesus was crucified, they returned to it. Three days later, Jesus finds them back at work in their family business catching fish, selling fish, they'd gone back to their old way of life. They clearly didn't sell everything they had to come and follow Jesus. So what we find when we look at each one of these cases and what people say to to individuals about the power of money and the power of greed in their lives is that generosity isn't so much about what I have, it's about how I think about what I have. What place am I giving it in my heart? Ultimately, generosity is not about what you would do if you win that half a billion dollars that's in the Mega Millions lottery, right? I mean, we all have dreams about how generous we'd be if we won that. I mean, shoot, if I win it, I'll take you all to lunch, right? But you're going to order water because we do have to have some moderation in this, right? It's not about what we would do. Generosity is a question about what are you doing now with what God has blessed you with Now, is generosity a growing habit in our lives? Or does it take a back seat to our personal desires? And if it does, we shouldn't be surprised to see greed creeping in. If we want to live generously, here's the second idea. As we plan for the future, we need to think terminally. Such a cheerful thought for a Sunday morning, right? Jesus wanted his disciples to live each and wants us to live each and every day of our lives with the perspective of a person who's had a brush with death. 
a new sense of purpose, a new sense of stewardship and ownership of what we have. Because people with a keen awareness of their mortality live by different priorities. Connie and I recently went through the process of converting our wills to a trust, uh, largely because of the mess that my dad left behind when he died, and we just said, we're not doing that to our kids. So we converted everything into a trust. It caused us to think critically, to have some really important conversations. Some of them were intense, but good. Uh, And we started thinking about, you know, we don't have a lot. It's kind of how we went into the process. When the lawyer started talking to us, he's a good friend. He goes, yeah, you've got quite a deal here that you've got to take care of. In the process, we realized we're worth more dead than we are alive. We didn't tell our kids that, though. Um, And I was a little put off when our attorney friend, in the middle of the conversation, like we'd done some of the work, we're sitting there for another appointment, and he just cuts me out of the conversation. And he looks right at Connie and says, now, when Greg dies, here's how this is all going to happen. I can hear you. I'm sitting right here. He goes, well, you know, if you study the actuarial tables, you look at the statistics, you're going to die before her. And I just, not my best moment, but I said the first thing that came out of my mouth, I said, Russ, you're 10 years older than me. You're going to die before me. So who's going to take care of us when you're gone? (laughs) We had a good laugh. Uh, I miss him. He was a good friend. Um, (laughs) No, but it's not fun to face our mortality, Right? It's not fun to sit at a table and go, now, when you die, Connie's going to be a wealthy woman and we're going to protect her assets. And I go, I don't like thinking about that. But having him ask those questions made us begin to think through our finances and our own mortality. And how do we want to create this generosity that will outlive us in our kids, in others? It's good to think about your mortality. The mortality rate in the U.S. is still hovering very close to 100%. Some of you will get that on the way home. And as a result, your fortune and mine, little or big, will one day become the property of people who did not work for it and may not appreciate it, at least as much as we do. And so the Bible calls us to enjoy our possessions as blessings from God, but keep them in perspective. Use them to bless other people now and later. Use them to spread the message of God's love and grace. Do something that will outlast you because, remember Jesus said, life isn't measured by how much you own. One more idea on how to live generously. Whether you have a lot or a little in this world, hold it loosely. It's just stuff. That's all it is. It doesn't matter. It's not going with you. It's not the most important thing. In fact, God asks us to live with a perspective of Him as the owner of everything we have. And we are just managers. He owns it all. So if we take that perspective, then it just loosens our grip. We lose things and it's like, it's okay, it's just a thing. We give it away. You know, you find somebody who needs an extra bed and you've got a room with a bed in it and you give it away. It's just a thing. 
God's just calling us to be generous. When we begin to discover, to discover generosity, we also discover that God really doesn't care how much we have. He doesn't care whether we've got a little or a lot. He just wants to know that our devotion to Him matters more than anything else in this world. One of the best stories about generosity comes from the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles. It's in chapter 29. David is nearing the end of his life. He's the king of Israel. And God has just said, look, because of some of the choices in your life, you don't get to build the temple. It's a consequence of your choices, David. Your son Solomon will build the first temple in Jerusalem. David was taken back by that, but determined that with the rest of his days, because of God's goodness and graciousness to the nation and to him, he was going to get all the supplies together that he could to help in the building of this monument to God's goodness and grace. He started by opening up all the the reserves uh, that the king had available, all the coffers of the palace, and David put all of his money in, all of his possessions in. He said, this is all going to help build the temple. And he called the people to have the same spirit of generosity. When they started to come and leave their offerings for the temple, it was obvious pretty quickly that they were being incredibly generous with all that they owned. So much so that when it all began to be tallied up, they had donated 400 tons of gold, 600 tons of silver, double or triple that of bronze and iron, all of this to help build this amazing temple. They went into their personal possessions and took out precious jewels and gems and brought those to make the temple as beautiful as they possibly could. God had blessed them as a nation, taking them out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them to a land that was now their own. And by virtue of owning and possessing the land, they were now a recognized people again. And they showed their gratitude for God's blessing by being generous. They held things loosely. And as David surveyed everything that had been brought for the temple, he was deeply moved. He was overwhelmed. And he led the nation in a prayer. And as you read the prayer, you get a sense that that David just was so grateful for their generosity and openness to sharing. And so he prays that God will bless the people and that their love for God will always be stronger than their love for the stuff of this world. As we close this morning, I've adapted that prayer of David. I just want to pray it over us as a church, over you as an individual as we wrestle with this idea of generosity in our lives. So you can keep your eyes open and read the prayer that's on the screen. If you want, you can close your eyes if that helps you to focus and think through this prayer. Just do what works for you here as I pray. God, who are we that you would bless us as you have? God, we wonder who are we at times that you would forgive us? We wonder who are we that you would love us as your sons and your daughters. Who are we, God, that you would give to us so generously in this life? God, we recognize that all we have comes from you and from your hand. And all of it belongs to you. And we watch as others around us give generously and bless people in this world. 
And so we ask, God of our fathers, that you would make us a generous people forever. That you'd help us to be a generous people with all that you have given to us. And that above all, you would keep our hearts loyal to you forever.